Father, I give you thanks for the Word, for the opportunity to study it. Father, it's so easy after having done this uh, for two years now, Lord, to take for granted the blessing it is to be in your Word every Sunday. To uh, remember, Lord, that in so many other places on this very day, men and women meet in your name, but they are starving, Father, for the meat of the Word. And yet, Father, you feed us here so richly every week. And Father, we thank you for that. We ask you, Lord, that it doesn't go to waste, it doesn't sit on our table, so to speak, and uh, simply stay there. I pray, Lord, that we will take it in as you intend. It will change us. It will mold us. It will convict us, if necessary, Father, that we would not uh, hear words that you provide through your book here today and through my speaking, Father, and assume those words are meant for someone else. But, Lord, that we would each and every one of us hear you speak to us personally on what we learned today. And I pray, Father, that uh, you would bless this time as we give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in chapter 6 of Luke. We had just begun last week. Really one of the meatier chapters of Luke, if you want to call it that. The chapter is set inside a larger theme of tension that we've already seen developed in the first five chapters of Luke. This tension between Jesus and the unbelieving religious leaders of the day. Men who looked like the picture of righteousness men who assumed that they would be first in line at the pearly gates, but in fact were earning the wages of their sin, that being death. A second theme that Luke is in the middle of developing and will continue to develop as we go through this book is how Jesus, as God made into man, must rely continually on the Father for guidance and for support and do it in a way that He's never experienced before. Yes, He's God, but... To be made man is more than simply the container that he happens to be in. It changed his nature and his abilities by a voluntary taking of a form that reduced him to man while still being God. That, that intersection of the two that is hard for us to appreciate. That theme Luke wants to continue to develop is that as he became a man, he had to rely that much more on the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what the Father wanted him to do. And as an example of, uh, to us of how we must learn to rely on the Holy Spirit ourselves, Luke continues to pull that theme through as well. So here we are in the beginning of chapter 6, looking at the details, but also trying to remember how Luke is developing these larger themes. Last week, at the beginning of the chapter, we looked at the Sabbath issues that were raised by the Pharisees, incorrectly raised, and how they really were nothing more than legalism, the uh, use of rules to define righteousness in terms of our actions rather than relying on our faith in God through the leading of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Fundamental definition of legalism. And this week we pick up in verse 12 as Jesus makes a choice of who will be his apostles. Join me in chapter 6, verse 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them whom he also named as apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Well, Luke spent most of chapters 4 and into chapter 5, providing an overview of Jesus' ministry. We've gone through this, of course. He was anointed 
uh, into ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. He taught with power, we've been told. He performed healings and he gained popularity with the crowds. In fact, he gained huge popularity very early in his ministry. And then in chapter 5, and then all the way into the beginning of chapter 6, Luke begins to reveal the effect of Jesus' ministry and of his popularity. And the effect specifically on the religious leaders of the day. How they reacted to this new man, and with these amazing powers and this amazing popularity. And we looked specifically last week and in the weeks earlier on their disagreements with him over his methods. And their disagreements and offense at his message. And then most of all, their anger at the powerful effect he was having on the people. How it threatened their control over the people. But now Luke takes a brief break at this point in chapter 6. And he's going to sort of set aside all these themes I've mentioned. And concentrate on, on just an important detail in the development of Christ's ministry. On the calling of the apostles. Jesus is going to bring alongside him 12 men. 12 men that are effectively his students to begin with, yes, but ultimately his confidants and his friends. And finally, they're going to become the early builders of the church. The first men who go out to establish the church. Jesus is going to select these men from among the many disciples that were now following him everywhere he traveled. And before we go any further, looking at the men themselves, I want you to take a look in the verses we read this morning on how he prepared for that decision. I think that's a timely issue for us as well. Luke 12 tells us that Jesus went off for the night and he spent the whole night seeking the Father in prayer. You know, when you read in the Gospels about Jesus, the Son of God, God Himself in the form of man, taking a moment, and in this case a whole night, to pray to the Father. Do you ever catch yourself wondering, why does Jesus, who is also God Himself, have to pray to talk to the Father? Wouldn't the mind of Jesus and the mind of the Father be one all the time? What, what, what is it? Why would there be a need for conscious prayer on the part of Jesus? And wouldn't the thoughts of Jesus and the thoughts of the God, the Father, always be the same? As if they would never lose communication. Well, I want you to consider some things from Scripture to help understand why prayer took such a prominent role in Jesus' ministry during His time on earth. In John 8.42, and I'm just going to Read verses here and there. If you want to write them down and look at them later, I would encourage you. John 8:42. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love Me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not come even on My own initiative, but He sent Me. John 10:18. No one has taken it away from Me, but I lay it down, speaking about His life. No one has taken it away from Me, but I lay it down on My own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. These two scriptures, and there's many more like them, particularly in the Gospel of John, illustrate that the Father and Son are separate, so much so that the Father can command the Son and He would obey the Father. But, Scripture also teaches this in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. John 17.22, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may see that just as we are one. Speaking of Him and the Father. And of course, at the beginning of John's Gospel, John 1.1, 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the Father and the Son are one God. Both existing from the beginning. Likewise, the Holy Spirit existed in the beginning. If you go to Genesis 1, verse 2, we hear about in the beginning, the Holy Spirit moved over the surface of the deep. But 
the Spirit Himself is separate from the Father and the Son because in John 14.26 we hear Christ say, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So in other words, we could go on all day about these Scriptures, but it's pretty clear we have two issues in Scripture. We have a fact stated that the Holy Spirit is part of God and yet separate. We hear that Christ and God were together in the beginning and were God, but yet the Father sends the Son and He obeys the Father. Try as we might, we can't reconcile these two facts, that the mystery of the Trinity, and that's why we call it a mystery, presents us with God as three persons and yet as one person. That's the mystery of the Trinity. Scripture teaches both these truths and they're taught in such a way that they're not seen by the Scripture as contradictory. It sounds contradictory to us, but the Scripture presents them both in back-to-back verses almost in such a way that they're not intended to be contradictory. Scripture simply represents them as the truth. One of the consequences of this truth is that God the Son, during His ministry on earth, took the form of man while God the Father remained in His throne. And during this time, both were still God, and yet the choice of the Son to assume the form of man put a new barrier between them. A barrier that included a barrier of communication. This is not to diminish Christ as God. This is not to suggest that somehow He was less God because He took this form. It is simply to acknowledge the seriousness of Him taking the form of man. Sometimes I think we're prone to say, oh yeah, He just took the form of man, but He's still God just in a a different container. Well, true enough, but that container has significant limitations. That's the reason why Paul says in Philippians 2.6, Christ, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Think about that. He was equal with God, but He did not retain that. That's the whole point of what Paul's saying. He didn't count that equality so important that He wouldn't be willing to give it up for a time. He then says in the next verse, emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. What do you think emptying Himself means? He's emptying Himself of that equality. He's putting Himself by choice, temporarily, in a form where he now has limitations he's never had before. Not limitations that diminish him in the sense of not being God anymore, but self-imposed limitations that he now has to contend with so that he can truly say, I've been where you are. I know what it's like to be men because I took a form, not just in the way I look, but in the way of my nature. He no longer now had perfect communication with the Father. He had to rely on the Holy Spirit to be the mechanism by which he could communicate to the Father in prayer. We've already seen in earlier chapters of Luke, he no longer had the ability to heal of his own initiative. He had to wait for the Father to grant him the ability to heal through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Scriptures told us that in Luke. I think what concerns people is if if you state what's on the page, you seem to be suggesting he was less God. No, he's, he's all God and the, the, the miraculous aspect of the Scripture is that he was willing to do what he did for the sake of men. That he was willing to count equality not a thing to be grasped but emptied himself so that he would have the opportunity to save those who would believe in him. That's the meaning of taking the form of man. It's not just that he suffered death. I mean, that's a big part of it, sure, but it was in his very form that he took that he made a huge sacrifice for the sake of men. So here we see Jesus seeking a quiet place to pray to the Father for guidance on whom to select as his apostles. Now, as we turn our focus to the apostles, I want you to consider that there were many disciples of Jesus beyond these twelve. Sometimes we use the word disciple and apostle interchangeably when we talk about the twelve. Well, that's true. They were both. 
But that's because apostle is a subset of disciple. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of people that followed Jesus a lot in his early ministry. They're all called disciples. If you even go look at the verses I read in Luke at the beginning of this morning, look at how it says, when he was up on the mountain praying, he came down and he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them. He called all the disciples, but chose twelve of them, and he named them apostles. Matthew 20, uh, verse 24 of chapter 4 talks about this same event and adds a, some additional detail. Matthew says this, The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, and uh, de- uh, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, sorry, and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. We already have said, because of his healing power, he had a huge popularity, a huge following. These people came and went with him wherever he went. And remember the word disciple means pupil, means student. Many of them hung around him long enough to say, I want to be a student of yours. I want to be a follower of yours. And that's the crowd that's now around him at the point where he selects his apostles. But... Not all who are disciples will naturally become apostles. And the distinction is this. A disciple, as we said, is a student or a pupil. But apostle, the word apostle means one who is sent with a message or sent with a mission. It's a different kind of commissioning than simply being called a disciple. As I've said, all apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. The Bible uses the word apostle here to refer to the twelve men named in this chapter. Uh, to later a man named Matthias, who will come in in place of Judas Iscariot. In the first chapter of Acts, you'll see this, where after Judas has committed suicide, the remaining 11 apostles, after Jesus' death, decide that there was always God's intention that there be 12. And now that there's only 11, they view that there is an opening, an apostleship that's unoccupied. And so they trust God to fill it. They cast lots to select between two men. And the one that's selected is Matthias. So he takes the place of Judas Iscariot. So in the Bible, going back to what I was saying, the Bible uses the word apostle only to describe the original twelve plus Matthias when he substitutes for Judas. And then one more person. Paul. Paul is the last person given that title in Scripture. The common quality of all these men, the thing that means they have the right to be called an apostle, is that they had direct Revelation from Christ himself in person. That Christ himself... Now you can say, well, Matthias never had that. But remember, Matthias is filling the empty seat of a man who did. He's essentially a surrogate for the original man. Had Judas Iscariot still been around, they would never have gone and found Matthias. So he's really just a substitute for the, for the one that was already selected. But Paul received on the road to Damascus direct revelation from Christ. I would argue, based on that, that biblically speaking, the word apostle is only to be used for those men and none other. That it is these ones who were commissioned by Christ to plant the early church that we should call apostle. Rather, we all could be called disciples, overseers, bishops, pastors, elders, deacons, prophets, witnesses, all the other words in Scripture that can be used generally to talk about followers of Christ or people who have some position of authority in ministry. All those words are provided in Scripture in a general sense, but only apostle seems to apply to those early men. Now, I could be wrong, and it really doesn't matter. I mean, you can throw the words around. I don't think it really has any significance, except if somebody attains that title for themselves and then presents themselves as having some special authority by Christ, that I would be careful about. 
Because in Scripture, that seems to be only those that Christ himself selected would get that honor. Today, we would use different terms, I would think. But we can also see some similarities between these men and how men and women today are generally called into the church. He calls all believers to follow Christ, first of all. All those who are believers in Jesus Christ should call themselves disciples. But understand, disciple doesn't just mean you've signed up for something. Disciple, by the very definition of the word, means you are a pupil. You are a student. First and foremost, you are following Christ for what information, what knowledge, what life-changing information He has for you. Not for the sake of simply getting your head filled, understanding that, but yet it starts with knowledge and then becomes the means by which we are changed through that knowledge. He then calls some of those disciples to be messengers, messengers of a different order. In his day, they were called apostles. Today, we might call them something different, missionaries, ministers. But these now are that equivalent subgroup of disciples, men and in some cases women who would recognize a different calling on their lives and know that they have a specific um, job to do, if you will. But that job is still the same job. Here's where I think we might want to make some parallels between ministers today and apostles in Christ's day. The principal job of an apostle was what? Well, the word means a man or a woman sent with a message. The message was what? The gospel. The early apostles founded the church on the basis of spreading the gospel message. I would argue today that anyone who feels a calling into ministry beyond just being a disciple is got to feel the call to spread the gospel message. Not merely to go out in service. Not merely to go out in music. Not merely to go out in some specific talent or ability. Whether it's preaching or teaching, no different. But inherent in that message, in that activity, is the spread of the gospel. If the spread of the gospel is not somewhere in the midst of that sending out process, then they have not recognized a calling, a true calling. They're doing something in their own power. That's not to minimize the benefit of those other activities. It's simply to distinguish them. There is a distinction between God sending out men and women in ministry with the gospel message as the core of their ministry versus somebody in a church body in some other way serving that body, giving a talent or a time or or a gifting in service to that body. That's being a disciple based on what we learn out of the Word. No matter what our spiritual gifting, if we feel God's calling, we must recognize that it includes the requirement to carry the gospel message forward. I do find it striking that before Jesus selected these twelve men, he spends the entire night in prayer to the Father. Now, we've already said that, but I want you to consider not the fact that he had to pray. We just covered that. But I want you to consider for a moment the very need to have to pray. Remember, consider for a moment, Jesus had walked with these men for some time already. This is... This is not that early in his ministry. This is after some time walking and teaching and healing throughout the area of Galilee with many of these men from the very earliest stages of that time being with him. It was Jesus, after all, who selected them. If you know the stories we've already taught out of the earlier part of Luke, he was the one who sought after these men and pulled them out of the tax collector booth and said, you're going to follow me. He had no doubt already formed ideas in his mind about who the apostles would be, don't you think? Don't you think Jesus already knew among these disciples he had who his apostles were probably going to be? He didn't he have enough time already to make that decision? Hadn't he already thought it all through? And I'm struck by the fact that he was so determined to know and then do his Father's will that even though he must have felt comfortable with making that choice, he must have had some sense in his own mind about what it is he wanted to do, that even now in this moment he spends an entire night praying to the Father to find out what he should do. 
And it's so, the thing is so helpful for me, and I hope for you as well, to consider that no matter how sure you are about something, the moment you're sure, you're in trouble. Because what you could be doing the next day and the day after that is what you thought you were supposed to do, not what God is asking you to do. Because He never changes His mind, but He doesn't, on the other hand, ever stop talking to us either. And He may very well have a plan that you do A on one day and B on the next. And that's not a change in mind. That's simply the way the plan was intended to go. Christ doesn't want to move forward without the Father's guidance, so He prays. Now, the apostles, as we see the list, are in the order of importance. That's generally a common way of listing names in Scripture. There are some minor variations in the order between what you see in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but they're not significant. They all list Peter first. They all list Judas Iscariot last. And generally the order flows pretty consistently with just a couple of changes here and there. If you scan the list of the twelve names with me, take note in this list as you look. There's not a single qualified person in the list. There's not a single person on this list who is a religious leader. There's not a single person on this list who received any formal training as a spiritual guide or a spiritual leader in the nation of Israel. No one here went to seminary or whatever the equivalent would have been in that day. These were fishermen. These were tax collectors. In fact, when Jesus came upon them, each of them on their own day, none were actively pursuing a religious profession. None of them had signed up for some kind of religious training. In other words, they weren't even thinking about it. It wasn't even a thought on their minds. In fact, a few of these people you could call outcasts, unreligious people who were considered the lowest of sinners, the tax collector being the best example. In other words, they... They weren't just unqualified. You could say that many of them were disqualified on the basis of what people in that day would have said religious people should look like, religious leaders should look like. But they were the ones Jesus selected. And not just Jesus, but the Father. We're reminded of that in John's Gospel in chapter 666. It says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. What it's speaking about here is a statement Jesus made that you must eat my body and drink my blood if you are to be my disciple. They didn't understand what he meant at the time and they were offended by it, as you might imagine. It sounded like cannibalism. And so it says many of them withdrew, not walking with them anymore. Now listen, many of his disciples withdrew. Now we know better who that's referring to, right? The crowd. Many of the crowd were starting to fade away at the thought of some of what he was starting to teach. You can imagine after, you, after some amount of time of walking with Christ, they hear him say something like this and they think, I knew it wouldn't last. He's gone wacky. I figured sooner or later we'd, we'd find that this person isn't real. It's not what we thought. It's obviously now he's a nutcase. And they start to withdraw. And Jesus says this in verse 67. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? He challenges them to the twelve that he had named apostles. You're not going to do what they're doing, are you? Simon Peter answered him. Here's good old prideful Peter. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We know better. We wouldn't depart. Don't worry, Jesus. We're on your side. That's sort of the tone of his statement. And Jesus answered them in verse 70. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus reminds them that they didn't end up where they were because of their own choices. These men weren't where they were as the twelve apostles following Jesus because they all decided one day, hey, I'm going to be an apostle. That's like waking up one day and deciding, I'm going to be a lottery winner today. 
Trust me, it doesn't work. I've tried it many times. It does not work. God will choose those He wishes to elevate into the role of His messenger. In that day, no different today. And the ones He chooses to elevate are not the ones we naturally expect. That's been my experience, not just personally, but even as I look at other men who I have sat under in teaching roles or ministry roles, when you look at their lives and you hear the story of where they've come from, drug addicts, you know, people who've had every manner of sin in their past, and then one day they woke up and God called them into something they never expected. They're going to seem disqualified according to our standards. The, the qualifications they do bring to the job are completely irrelevant. Construction worker, accountant, you know, whatever, computer guy. I mean, you know, there's, there's things that just have no relationship to what you would expect would have to be there in order for someone to be used by God. But God's desire to call them away from the world He finds them in is a part of how He gives them this new mission. John 15:19, Christ said this, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. His main message there is the fact that the world's going to despise you, but hidden in there is a statement. He says, I chose you out of the world. In other words, I went looking for people who epitomized the world. You didn't walk around in some self-righteous state. Look at me, I'm perfect for ministry. I'm, I'm a super person. God's just going to have to choose me. No, he's looking for people that were the dregs of society so that he could choose them out of the world. And by that difference, God's glory and grace and mercy is that much more pronounced, that much more visible to us. Because he would use somebody who the world would think is unusable. But it's, there's another half to this story, though. It's important to recognize that though God selected men who were unqualified, he didn't send men who were untrained. At this point in Luke's Gospel, these men have no idea of what's ahead of them. None. All they know at this point is they've been selected to be part of this special inner circle of this really cool rabbi with some impressive healing powers. And it's all kind of new and fun and exciting and they don't really know where it's going. They're just glad to be in on it. It's kind of like uh, the Jewish version of American Idol. You know, we're all here together at the beginning. It's all really fun. Don't know where it's going, but you know, we're lucky to be in this group. But little do they know that God is going to put them through hell. Starting first with three years of training, sitting at the feet of Christ, I don't know that they really understood that, certainly not at first. I don't know how long it took for them to finally get it through their heads that they were sitting with the Son of God. Maybe not until the resurrection did some of them fully appreciate that. Doubting Thomas among them. But they're going to sit at the feet of Christ for three years and they're going to be trained by Him so that when they're prepared by that training, He can send them out. And this life of ministry they're about to go out on is going to include beatings and imprisonment and starvation and humility and ultimately, for almost all of them, martyrdom. That's what He's signed them up for. And they won't graduate, by the way, knowing everything they need to know. It's not as though on the day Christ was crucified, these men had the perfect training for what they were going forward to do. But they had enough. They had enough according to what God intended. And the Holy Spirit then went with them as the helper and He continued to teach and He continued to guide. And it's the same way for us now. Same way for us now. God calls those He wants in ministry. And He calls those He intends to elevate because of uh, what He intends to do with them, not because of who they are. Who God calls, He equips. But early in that process, I can tell you from experience, you don't know where He's taking you. Early, like the apostles, early in the process, you can't know what the ultimate goal is. And as soon as you start to get that, ah, that's what he's got me doing, you're, you're foolish at best and most likely wrong. 
Our job is merely to listen to Christ. And today, Christ is the Word of God. And through prayer, the Holy Spirit teaching us. But ultimately, it is the Word of God who is the effective equivalent in our lives today as Christ was to the apostles in their day. Growing with each new experience He gives us and applying ourselves to learning from our mistakes, that's the training. And if you can do that while you're in a seminary, so much the better. I might argue it's actually more difficult in a seminary to do some of that. The whole time, it's about trusting God to get us where He's taking us. Alright, now Jesus, He's selected these apostles and He's proceeding to teach them in unique ways apart from how He generally taught the crowd. He takes the apostles aside now. He's selected them. And from this point forward in the Gospel, you're going to see Him do this where He commonly talks to the apostles separate from the crowd. Now, maybe the crowd hangs close enough they can get some of the message, but His point is not to talk to the crowd. His point is primarily to teach the apostles. At other times, He branches out and kind of talks to the group at large. We need to notice that because there are going to be teachings as we move through this Gospel where you look at the content of His teaching and you have to consider what He's talking about. But if you recognize who His audience is in the moment, you have a much clearer understanding of what He's saying. The next section that we're about to go into, and we're not going to get very far today, but we're going to touch on it, kind of introduce it as a way of moving into it for next time. This next section is commonly called the Beatitudes. The word just means consummate bliss, perfect happiness, perfect bliss. And it begins with this transition. This transition we're going to see now. In the account of Mark and in the account of Matthew, the transition series of verses we're now going to look at differs in some ways from what Luke provides. And those differences, in fact, along with the differences in the discourse itself, Luke's discourse of the Beatitudes is much shorter than Matthew's, these differences have led some to speculate that these are actually two different discourses, that they happen at different times. Christ basically repeated the message for different groups. Uh, That's possible, I guess. But the introductions have such strong parallels, particularly as it applies to location, that it would strike me more, and, and many agree, that Luke simply condensed his account. He didn't necessarily include as much detail as Mark of, uh, as Matthew did. And we can actually reconcile some of the introduction differences. I'll give you an example. For example, in Luke, let's begin again in 17. Jesus came down with them, that means with the apostles, and stood on a level place, and there was a large crowd of his disciples and a great throng of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, and Sidon who had come near to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were being cured. And all the people were trying to touch him, for power was coming from him and healing them all. This is, as you notice, right before we begin to go into the Beatitudes discussion in the next verse. So this is that introductory transition that Luke provides. Luke says that Jesus first went up the mountain, selected the apostles, had a night of prayer, selected the apostles, Then it says he comes down to a level place to teach the crowds. But here's how Matthew records it in Matthew 4.24. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering from various diseases and pains, uh, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and far beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, the disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and he began to teach them. So, in Matthew, it says that Christ's ascent up the mountain began as he was to teach the Beatitudes. Whereas in Luke, it's a descent down to a level area when he then begins to teach the Beatitudes. But these two accounts, although they seem to be going in opposite directions, are actually fairly easy to harmonize. And here's how you would do it. 
We know Jesus went up to the mountain to pray before selecting the twelve. Matthew doesn't even record that at all. By morning then, he had selected the twelve and he descends to a level place and begins to teach and heal the crowds. But at some point, the crowds there become too immense, which is very common. We've already seen that at times. What did he do to retreat from the crowds when he was near Capernaum? He got on a boat. He had to actually get off onto the water so that nobody else could follow him because he was so pressed upon by the crowds. Here again, he's moved down the mountain as Luke records. He's begun to teach. But at some point in that teaching, the crowds become too immense and he retreats back up the mountain some distance to get away from the crowd. Remember, it's almost funny, although not in a nice way, I guess, but you know, these are paralytics. They can't climb up the mountain after him. These are people who, you know, who need healing. So his way of escaping them is to sort of retreat up a ways where they can't necessarily all follow, some maybe, but not all, and continue to teach from a vantage point where he's not being compressed so much by the crowd. And so that would harmonize the two, where Matthew is simply reflecting the fact that he went up, sat down, and was teaching, and Luke reflects the earlier stage of the process where he was up on the mountain praying and then first came down to start the teaching. The two could harmonize very easily in that way. There's actually a place that scholars have found in Capernaum, near Capernaum, where the mountain terrain would fit this scenario very easily, where you have mountains that plane down and then come down further, and there's flat areas where you could easily assemble a large group. And as we conclude for the day, I want you to notice that it's in this setting, having selected the twelve apostles, the men who formed this early church against essentially all odds, twelve men against the Roman Empire, against the Jewish authorities, starting the church. It's in a time when Christ's name is growing famous early in his ministry, when the Pharisees are feeling their power threatened and their empire, their status within their empire threatened. It's in this climactic mix, this, this combination of awe for Christ from the crowds and hatred of him by the authorities, reverence by the ones being healed, and ultimately spite from anyone who th- uh, feels like he's there to take their authority. It's in all of this climate that Christ then launches into what is arguably the most sublime teaching in all of the Gospels. And it's one about trusting in God versus trusting in self. It's a message on the difference between demanding justice but giving mercy instead. The difference between expecting your reward here versus being patient and waiting for it in eternity. On the difference between faith in works and works of our faith. And this message, we're going to study as you know next time, this message really is to the core of what it means to be Christian, how to know if you're Christian, what you do as a Christian. It's not earning anything. It's a response. But it is in so so many ways a dividing line that if you understand His teaching of the Beatitudes, you have a much clearer appreciation on what Jesus came to change when His ministry came to earth. Father, our time in the Gospel of Luke continues to reward us, Father. Thank you so much for the opportunity to study in this way, to see Christ anew every day, to appreciate, Father, just what it meant for Him to take the form of man, knowing that His result would only be death on a cross, and in the meantime, Father, separation from You in a new way, a way that He had never had to experience before, of the need, Father, to have to live a life and suffer through it the way men do, What kind of love, Father, would do that? A love that we can't even imagine. And yet, Father, You've chosen us to receive that love and we thank You so much for it. We have no way to ever say thank You with near enough meaning for what You've done. But, Father, You say if we love You, if we understand what You've done for us and if we 
know that we must respond in the love You first showed to us, then You say, if we love You, keep My commandments. If we love You, You tell us to obey Your Word. And by what we do with Your Word, Father, by how we react to it, how we treat it, how we give our time to it and our attention to it, how we respond to its direction, by that we show our love. Father, I pray that we would show that love. I pray, Lord, that those who've been in here this morning and hearing Your Word would be blessed by it, that they would know, Father, that uh, You're calling us out from the world to be Your disciple, and perhaps even more than that, begins and ends with sitting at Your feet, knowing Your Word, letting it convict us of sin, change us, mold us, guide us. We pray, Father, as we end our service today, that the Word in us would be the guide by which we would make decisions today, that we would hear from You today. That our choices, Father, would not be according to what we have the power to do, not what we have the capability to do, Father. And nor would it be by what we don't feel we have the ability to do. But rather, we rest in You. So, Father, we ask You to tell us what You can do through us. And whatever it is, Father, give us the courage to do it. I thank You, Father, for all the time we've spent in this building. Whether more time comes or not, Lord, I pray that we would be honoring to You in any direction You give. And for the worship time this, uh, this morning, Father, for the time of Your Word, I just give You thanks for the rest and the peace it provided. As Daniel closes his Father, I pray that he would be blessed as, as well with the music to give us an uplifting moment to end and, Father, a chance to continue to serve. Thank You, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.